Part six, chapter three of Home Education Series, Volume One Home Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Home Education Series, Volume One Home Education by Charlotte Mason. Part six, chapter three The Divine Life in the Child. Read by Lisa A. Chapter 3. The Divine Life in the Child The Very Pulse of the Machine It is evident we have not yet reached, quote, the very pulse of the machine, end quote. Habits, feeling, reason, conscience, we have followed these into the inmost recesses of the child's life. Each acts upon the other, but what acts upon the last? What acts upon them all? It is, says a writer, who has searched into the deep things of God, it is a king that our spirits cry for, to guide them, discipline them, unite them to each other, to give them a victory over themselves, a victory over the world. It is a priest that our spirits cry out for, to lift them above themselves to their God and Father, to make them partakers of his nature, fellow workers in carrying out his purposes. Christ's sacrifice is the one authentic testimony that he is both the priest and king of men. Parents have some power to enthrone the king. Conscience, we have seen, is effective only as it is moved from within, from that innermost chamber of Mansoul, that holy of holies, the secrets of which are only known to the high priest, who needed not that any man should tell him, for he knew what was in man. It is necessary, however, that we should gather up crumbs of fact and inference, and set in order such knowledge as we have. For the keys even of this innermost chamber are placed in the hands of parents, and it is a great deal in their power to enthrone the king, to induct the priest that ever human spirit cries for. THE FUNCTIONS AND LIFE OF THE SOUL We take it for granted in common speech that every soul is a living soul, a fully developed, full-grown soul. But the language of the Bible, and that of general experience, seem to point to startling conclusions. It has been said of a great poet, with how much justice is not the question here, that if we could suppose any human being to be made without a soul, he was such an abortive attempt. For while he had reason, imagination, passions, all the appetites and desires of an intelligent being, he appeared to exercise not one of the functions of the soul. Now what are these functions, the suspension of which calls the very existence of a man's soul in question? We must go back to the axiom of Augustine. The soul of man is for God, as God is for the soul. The soul has one appetite for the things of God, breathes one air, the breath, the spirit of God, has one desire for the knowledge of God, one only joy in the face of God. I want to live in the light of a countenance which never ceases to smile upon me, is the language of the soul. The direct action of the soul is all Godward, with a reflex action towards men. The speech of the soul is prayer and praise, the right hand of the soul is faith, the light of the soul is love, the love of God shed abroad upon it. Observe, these are the functions, this the life of the soul, the only functions, the only life it can have. If it have not these, it has no power to turn aside and find the life of its hand elsewhere. As the conscience, the will, 
the reason is ineffective till it be nourished with its proper food exercised in its proper functions so of the soul and its chamber is dull with cobwebbed doors and clouded windows until it awake to its proper life not quite empty though for there is the nascent soul and the awakening into life takes place sometimes with the sudden shock the gracious miracle which we call conversion sometimes when the parents so will the soul of the child expands with a gentle sweet growth and gradual unfolding as of a flower there are torpid souls which are yet alive there are feeble sickly souls which are yet alive and there are souls which no movement godward ever quickens what is the life of the soul this life of the soul what is it communicated life as when one lights a torch at the fire perhaps but it is something more intimate more unspeakable i am the life in him was life and the life was the light of men abide in me and i in you the truth is too ineffable to be uttered in any words but those given to us but it means this at least that the living soul does not abide alone in its place that place becomes the temple of the living god surely the lord is in this place and i knew it not how dreadful is this place the parent must present the idea of god to the soul of the child but this holy mystery this union and communion of god and the soul how may human parents presume to meddle with it what can they do how can they promote it and is there not every risk that they may lay rude hands upon the ark in the first place it does not rest with the parent to choose whether he will or will not attempt to quicken and nourish this divine life in his child to do so is his bounden duty and service if he neglect or fail in this i am not sure how much it matters that he has fulfilled his duties in the physical moral and mental culture of his child except in so far as the child is the fitter for the divine service should the divine life be awakened in him but what can the parent do just this and no more he can present the idea of god to the soul of the child here as throughout his universe almighty god works by apparently inadequate means who would say that a bee can produce apple trees yet a bee flies from an apple tree laden with the pollen of its flowers this it unwittingly deposits on the stigmas of the flowers of the next tree it comes to the bee goes but the pollen remains but with all the length of the style between it and the immature ovule below that does not matter the ovule has no power to reach the pollen grain but the latter sends forth a slender tube within the tube of the style the ovule is reached behold then the fruit with its seed and if you like future apple trees accept the parable the parent is little better in this matter than the witless bee it is his part to deposit so to speak within reach of the soul of the child some fruitful idea of god the immature soul makes no effort towards that idea but the living word reaches down touches the soul and there is life growth and beauty flower and fruit must not make blundering efforts i venture to ask you to look for once at these divine mysteries from the same philosophical standpoint we have taken up in regarding all the capabilities and functions of the child partly because it is instructive to see how the mysteries of the religious life appear when it is looked at from without its own sphere partly because i wish to rise by unbroken steps to the supreme function of the parent in the education of his child 
for here the similitude of the bee and the apple-tree fails. The parent must not make blundering witless efforts, as this is the highest duty imposed upon him. It is also the most delicate, and he will have infinite need of faith and prayer, tact and discretion, humility, gentleness, love, and sound judgment, if he would present his child to God, and the thought of God to the soul of his child. God presented to children as an exactor and a punisher. If we think of God as an exactor and not a giver, it has been well said, exactors and not givers shall we become. Yet is not this the light in which God is most commonly set before the children, a pharaoh demanding his tale of bricks, bricks of good behavior and right doing? Do not parents deliberately present God as an exactor to back up the feebleness of their own government? And do they not freely utter on the part of God threats they would be unwilling to utter on their own part? Again, what child has not heard from his nurse this, delivered with much energy? God does not love you, you naughty boy. He will send you to the bad place. And these two thoughts of God, as an exactor and a punisher, make up, often enough, all the idea the poor child gets of his father in heaven. What fruit can come of this but aversion, the turning away of the child from the face of his father? What if, instead, were given to him the thought well expressed in the words, the all-forgiving gentleness of God? Parents must select inspiring ideas. These are but two of many deterrent thoughts of God commonly presented to the tender soul, and the mother, who realizes that the heart of her child may be irrevocably turned against God by the ideas of him imbibed in the nursery, will feel the necessity for grave and careful thought and definite resolve as to what teaching her child shall receive on this momentous subject. She will most likely forbid any mention of the divine name to the children, except by their parents, explaining at the same time that she does so because she cares so much that her children should get none but right thoughts on this great matter. It is better that children should receive a few vital ideas that their souls may grow upon than a great deal of indefinite teaching. We must teach only what we know. How to select these few quickening thoughts of the infinite God? The selection is not so difficult to make as would appear at first sight. In the first place, we must teach that which we know, know by the life of the soul, not with any mere knowledge of the mind. Now of the vast mass of the doctrines and the precepts of religion, we shall find that there are only a few vital truths that we have so taken into our being that we live upon them. This person, these, that person, those, some of us, not more than a single one. One or more, these are the truths we must teach the children, because these will come straight out of our hearts with the enthusiasm of conviction, which rarely fails to carry its own idea into the spiritual life of another. There is no more fruitful source of what it is hardly too much to call infant infidelity, than the unreal dead words which are poured upon children about the best things, with an artificial solemnity of tone and manner intended to make up for the want of living meaning in the words. Let the parent who only knows one thing from above teach his child that one. More will come to him by the time the child is ready for more. Fitting and Vital Ideas Again, there are some ideas of the spiritual life more proper than others, to the life and needs of the child. Thus Christ the joy-giver is more to him than Christ the consoler. And there are some few ideas which are as the daily bread of the soul, 
without which life and growth are impossible. All other teaching may be deferred until the child's needs bring him to it. But whoever sends his child out into life without these vital ideas of the spiritual life, sends him forth with a dormant soul, however well instructed he may be in theology. THE KNOWLEDGE OF GOD DISTINCT FROM MORALITY Again, the knowledge of God is distinct from morality, or what the children call being good, though being good follows from that knowledge. But let these come in their right order. Do not bepreach the child to weariness about being good, as what he owes to God, without letting in upon him first a little of that knowledge which shall make him good. We are no longer suffering from an embarrassment of riches. These limitations shut out so much of the ordinary teaching about divine things that the question becomes rather, what shall we teach, than how shall we choose? The Times and the Manner of Religious Instruction The next considerations that will press upon the mother are of the times and the manner of this teaching in the things of God. It is better that these teachings be rare and precious than too frequent and slightly valued better not at all than that the child should be surfeited with the mere sight of spiritual food rudely served. At the same time he must be built up in the faith, and his lessons must be regular and progressive, and here everything depends upon the tact of the mother. Spiritual teaching, like the wafted odor of flowers, should depend on which way the wind blows. Every now and then there occurs a holy moment, felt to be holy by mother and child, when the two are together, that is the moment for some deeply felt and softly spoken word about God, such as the occasion gives rise to. Few words need be said, no exhortation at all, just the flash of conviction from the soul of the mother to the soul of the child. Is our father the thought thus laid upon the child's soul? There will be, perhaps, no more than a sympathetic meeting of eyes hereafter, between mother and child, over a thousand showings forth of our father's love. But the idea is growing, becoming part of the child's spiritual life. This is all. No routine of spiritual teaching, a dread of many words which are apt to smother the fire of the sacred life. Much self-restraint shown in the allowing of seeming opportunities to pass. And all the time, earnest purpose of heart, and a definite scheme for the building up of the child in the faith. It need not be added that to make another use of our Lord's words, this kind cometh forth only by prayer. It is as the mother gets wisdom liberally from above that she will be enabled for this divine task. The Reading of the Bible A word about the reading of the Bible. I think we make a mistake in burying the text under our endless comments and applications. Also, I doubt if the picking out of individual verses and grinding these into the child until they cease to have any meaning for him is anything but a hindrance to the spiritual life. The word is full of vital force, capable of applying itself. A seed, light as thistledown, wafted into a child's soul, will take root downwards and bear fruit upwards. What is required of us is that we should implant a love of the word, that the most delightful moments of the child's day should be those in which his mother reads for him, with sweet sympathy and holy gladness in voice and eyes, the beautiful stories of the Bible, and now and then in the reading will occur one of those convictions, passing from the soul of the mother to the soul of the child, in which is the life of the spirit. Let the child grow, so that new thoughts of God, new hopes of heaven, are a joy to him, too. 
things to be counted first amongst the blessings of a day. Above all, do not read the Bible at the child. Do not let any words of the Scriptures be occasions for gibbeting his faults. It is the office of the Holy Ghost to convince of sin, and he is able to use the word for this purpose, without risk of that hardening of the heart in which our clumsy dealings too often result. The matter for this teaching of divine things will come out of every mother's own convictions. I will attempt to speak of only one or two of those vital truths on which the spiritual life must sustain itself. Father and Giver Our Father, who is in heaven, is perhaps the first idea of God which the mother will present to her child, Father and Giver, straight from whom comes all the gladness of every day. What a happy birthday our Father has given to my little boy! The flowers are coming again. Our Father has taken care of the life of the plants all through the winter cold. Listen to that skylark. It is a wonder how our Father can put so much joy into the heart of one little bird. Thank God for making my little girl so happy and merry. Out of this thought comes prayer, the free utterance of the child's heart, more often in thanks for the little joys of the day, counted up, than in desire just yet. The words do not matter. Any simple form the child can understand will do. The rising Godward of the child heart is the true prayer. Out of this thought, too, comes duty, the glad acknowledgment of the debt of service and obedience to a parent so gracious and benign. Not one who exacts service at the sword's point, as it were, but one whom his children run to obey. The essence of Christianity is loyalty to a person, Christ our King. Here is a thought to unseal the fountains of love and loyalty, the treasures of faith and imagination bound up in the child. The very essence of Christianity is personal loyalty, passionate loyalty to our adorable chief. We have laid other foundations, regeneration, sacraments, justification, works, faith, the Bible, any one of which, however necessary to salvation in its due place and proportion, may become a religion about Christ and without Christ. And now a time of sifting has come upon us, and thoughtful people decline to know anything about our religious systems. They write down all our orthodox beliefs as things not knowable. Perhaps this may be because, in thinking much of our salvation, we have put out of sight our King, the divine fact, which no soul of man to whom it is presented can ignore. In the idea of Christ is life. Let the thought of him once get touch of the soul, and it rises up, a living power, independent of all formularies of the brain. Let us save Christianity for our children by bringing them into allegiance to Christ, the King. How? How did the old cavaliers bring up sons and daughters in passionate loyalty and reverence for not too worthy princes? Their own hearts were full of it, their lips spake it, their acts proclaimed it, the style of their clothes, the ring of their voices, the carriage of their heads, all was one proclamation of boundless devotion to their king and his cause. That civil war, whatever else it did, or missed doing, left a parable for Christian people. If a Stuart prince could command such measure of loyalty, what shall we say of the chief amongst ten thousand, the altogether lovely? Jesus our Saviour here is a thought to be brought tenderly before the child in the moments of misery that follow wrongdoing. My poor little boy, you have been very naughty today. Could you not help it? No, mother, 
with sobs. No, I suppose not, but there is a way of help. And then the mother tells her child how the Lord Jesus is our Saviour because he saves us from our sins. It is a matter of question when the child should first learn the story of the cross. One thinks it would be very delightful to begin with Moses and the prophets, to go through the Old Testament history, tracing the gradual unfolding of the work and character of the Messiah, and then when their minds are full of the expectation of the Jews, to bring before them the mystery of the birth in Bethlehem, the humiliation of the cross. But perhaps no gain in freshness of presentation would make up to the children for not having grown up with the associations of Calvary and Bethlehem always present to their minds. One thing in this connection, it is not well to allow the children in a careless familiarity with the name of Jesus, or in the use of hymns whose tone is not reverent. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. The indwelling of Christ is a thought particularly fit for the children, because their large faith does not stumble at the mystery, their imagination leaps readily to the marvel, that the king himself should inhabit a little child's heart. How am I to know he is come, mother? When you are quite gentle, sweet, and happy, it is because Christ is within. And when he comes, he makes your face so fair, your friends are glad and say, The king is there. I will not attempt to indicate any more of the vital truths which the Christian mother will present to her child, having patience until they blossom and bear, and his soul is a very fruitful garden which the Lord has blessed. But once more, this kind cometh forth only by prayer. End of Part 6, Chapter 3 End of Home Education Series, Volume 1, Home Education, by Charlotte Mason